Bible this morning, I want to go ahead and invite you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and, I, and while you're doing that, for those of you who may not own a copy of the Bible, I want to offer you a copy that we'd love to give you as our gift that you'll find at the center of each aisle, uh, underneath the chairs on the center of each aisle, we place Bibles there for folks who, who are interested in having one. We'd love for you to have it, if, especially if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, uh, we would love the chance also to meet with you and to talk to you about that. Um, so let us, let, us, uh, let us know, and we'd love to follow up later. Okay, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and then the first part of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and by Monday of this week, I knew I was in trouble. I, uh, I was talking to a pastor friend, and when pastor friends talk with one another, they usually talk about what they're going to preach about. It's just one of those things we do. No explaining it, it just happens. I was talking to this pastor friend on Monday. We started talking about what we were going to each be preaching about on, uh, on the coming Sunday. I told him I was going to be preaching from 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, through chapter 4, verse 6. And he said, dude, that's a varsity move. And I thought, why? And when I was mapping out the series a couple months ago, it, looked, it made sense. You know, I hadn't really looked that closely at it since then. It seemed like this unit made sense to hang together like, like it was meant to go together, but... Okay, and later that day, I got into it, and I realized what he was talking about. The passage we're going to be looking at this morning is just full of doors we could open and walk into, doors that lead to rooms that are big and full of interesting and beautiful things to consider, and we can't open those doors. There are too many doors for one Sunday morning. So the first thing I want to do this morning is go ahead and apologize to you for how far beneath this text I'm going to be able to, to uh, sort of perform in the sermon this morning and encourage you to, to dig into it more deeply when you've got the time on your own. It's beautiful, and it raises all sorts of amazing questions that we just aren't going to be able to get to. I want to focus this morning on the reason I chose to take it in this unit in the first place. One of the things I try to always bring out, especially when we're talking about the Apostle Paul in one of his letters, is how relentlessly logical he is. How he speaks to us in, in a certain order. He arranges his ideas in a certain way that, that, um, that is usually pretty clear if you learn to look for the right signs. And that learning to understand what Paul wants you to get from one of his texts means learning to follow his train of thought. Looking for key words that connect the dots for you. This morning, the passage we're going to look for, it's, it's Paul's last defense of himself and his ministry. Something he's been doing for the first three chapters uh, of this letter. He's been defending himself against people who think that he's a fraud. This is his last defense of himself for a while. He comes back to it at the end of the letter, but this is where he's about to go off onto some other, uh, onto some other topics. His last defense, his last explanation of himself, of why he goes about his ministry in the way that he does, comes at the very beginning of chapter 4. But it comes sandwiched in between two paragraphs that explain why he does ministry the way that he does. What he's going to say about his ministry is something we've already seen him say two or three times so far in this letter. I'm actually not going to spend much time this morning on his main point, on his explanation of why he does ministry the way that he does. I want to spend time on, his, on, on, on the things that, are sa- that, that that ministry statement is sandwiched between, things that he gives us to help us explain why he does ministry the way that he does. So he gives us a passage here at the end of chapter 3, and then picking up again in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, that help explain his philosophy. Think about it this way. Here's how, here's how the flow of thought works, and I'm going to read it, and hopefully you can see it for yourself. Here's how the flow of thought works. It's as if I said, it's cold outside. Therefore, I'm going to put on a coat. 
because it's cold outside. See how the flow of thought works there? There's a statement about reality. There's a conclusion I'm drawing. I'm going to take some action based on what's true and what's real. And then it followed by a because, another explanation of why I'm taking the action I am. It's cold outside. Therefore, I'm going to put on a coat because it's cold outside. That's the kind of structure you're going to see when we read through this text. Paul is going to say something. He's going to draw a conclusion about his ministry. He's going to say, therefore, I do this. And then he's going to say, I do this because. I want to spend most of our time in the the parts before the therefore and after the because. Paul gives us here an amazing picture of what God is doing in people. His whole ministry is flowing from what he thinks God is doing in people. We want to make sure we understand it because it's a description of what God will do in you if you're willing to commit your life to him. And then we want to understand how God does what he does in people. And I want to organize all this around one central idea. What God is doing in the world, what he's doing in people, is setting them free. Paul's whole text builds on the idea of freedom. What freedom is for. Where freedom comes from. What freedom delivers you from. I want us to come away this morning with an understanding of the kind of freedom, the very specific kind of freedom that God wants to give you in your life. I want us to see that there is a freedom for transformation that Paul lays out here for us. That that freedom comes through grace, only through grace. And that when we experience this freedom for a specific kind of transformation through the grace that only God can give us, we are set free from fear and pride that hold us back. Those are the three steps I want to take this morning. I want to start by reading the text. Look for those cues I've already given you. See if you can follow Paul's train of thought. and You'll understand why we're breaking things down the way we are this morning. I want to ask you now to stand in honor of God's word while I read from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 beginning in verse 12. This is the word of the Lord from the Apostle Paul. Since we have such a hope, we're very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And there's your description of what God is doing, setting people free through His Spirit. Now Paul's conclusion. Therefore, because God is doing this, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's Word, but... By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is God's word. You can be seated. I want to start by picking up on what Paul says about freedom in verse 17 of that first paragraph that we looked at. I want you to see that there's a very specific sort of freedom that Paul has in mind. And I think before we can see that, before we can see the kind of freedom he wants us to see and enjoy, we need to think for a minute about what we think it means to be free. We want to think for a minute about our assumptions and check ourselves, maybe push back against something that might be built into us that we haven't recognized because it just seems so normal and natural to us, but that can keep us from connecting with the kind of freedom that, that Paul and ultimately that God wants us to enjoy. What do you think it means to be free? Probably you would say it has at least something to do with there being nothing to hold you back. Freedom means freedom from rules that tell you no or oppressive systems that hold you down, something like that. The freedom of a kid to run wild in the woods rather than sit still at dinner and finish his food. That's the kind of freedom that's really popular in America. It's like deep in us, in our, in our mythology about our country and what we're about. We think of freedom as freedom from British tyranny, right? Or freedom from expectations that you inherited just because of where you were born or who your parents were about what you would be in life. Freedom from the expectation that, that you had to stay the way that you are. That you couldn't make for yourself a different life than what you inherited. Freedom from discriminatory laws, like the Jim Crow era involved, where you had to sit in certain places and couldn't sit in other places. Freedom, freedom to be who you can be. Not held back by anyone else. There's a powerful form of freedom there. And it's, it's healthy and good in many cases. It's a kind of a freedom that we assume when we talk about freedom, I think, at least in our, in our time, in our place. There's another sort of freedom, though. I want to make sure you can tell the difference. There's another sort of freedom, and this other sort of freedom is the one that the Bible speaks of more often, and it's actually more important to what the Bible teaches us about who God is and what he wants to do for us. There's another sort of freedom that's often called positive freedom, so what I just described has often been called a negative freedom. Freedom from something that holds you back. There's another sort of freedom though, and this is the kind of freedom that the Bible often talks about. Called a, we might refer to it as a freedom for. A positive freedom. A freedom to be something specific that you weren't able to be before. A freedom to go and to do and to pursue something that's good for you. That would be right for you. To pursue who you should be. It's a freedom to be something, very specific, something you were made for. Think of this kind of freedom as the kind of freedom you need in order to be effective and fruitful and joyful. Here's, a, here's an image that might help you know the difference between these two kinds of freedom. I think you'll understand in a minute why I'm spending all this time on it. Uh, here, one kind of freedom, think of it as that raccoon tied to a ball in the little basket at the toy stores in the mall. Do you guys know what I'm talking about or is this completely falling flat? 
You walk by these toy stores and they got the display. It's like a little wire basket out there trying to tantalize my children. And inside this basket is a little ball that goes crazy. Usually attached to it is some sort of raccoon-type tail that just flops around as the ball goes in every different direction. I'm sure you don't press this too far, all right, this analogy. I'm sure there's some engineer somewhere who actually knows exactly why the ball takes the directions that it does. But phenomenologically speaking, as it appears to us, it looks like it's just going crazy wherever it wants to. Now, to set that ball free would be to take it out of the basket, put it down in the middle of the floor, and just let it go. And that ball is going to go in all sorts of directions, and who knows where it ends up. Think about that as one sort of freedom, a kind of freedom from, something that might keep me from going wherever I might want to go. Now think of the other sort of freedom, freedom for, as the freedom of a high-speed passenger train rolling down the tracks across the prairie, a train that is not held back, not slowed down, not stopped by anything, doing exactly what it was made to do, sticking to the rails that it was made to run on. That train would not be free if turned loose to go through the woods wherever it wanted to go. That would be... That would be a disaster for that train to know freedom. It needs to be on the tracks as it was designed for, barreling towards whatever direction was set by its designer. The kind of freedom the Bible wants for us, the kind of freedom that Paul is saying is found where the Spirit is, is a freedom for, a freedom to be the person God made you to be the joyful and effective and fruitful person living life as he designed you to live it. What we need most and what God gives through the gospel of Jesus is a freedom to be what we were made to be, a transformation from what we are into what he wants us to be. And that's what Paul says God is doing. Now I want to quickly point you to the details in the text so you're not just taking my word for it. Look at his vision of how freedom comes in, the, in this, this last paragraph of chapter 3. He picks up in verse 12 on something we looked at together last week. He's been describing these differences between his ministry, this era, on this side of Jesus, and the kind of ministry that was going on before Jesus, under the law of the Old Testament. He's talking about the differences between an old covenant an old arrangement about how God would relate to his people and a new one, a new covenant with new promises and new terms, new expectations. Last week he talked about how the difference between the old covenant and the new is the difference between having the spirit given, God's own spirit, his own presence, his own power in the hearts of all of his people, changing them so that they love what he loves. The difference in the new and the old was in old, there was just a law to tell you what you should be. And in the new, there is a spirit-given power to be what you should be. In the law, you're told what to love. You should love what God does. Here it is. In the new, under the new covenant, by the power of the spirit, you're given a transformation so that you do love what you ought to love. The difference between the old and the new is just a power to illuminate on one side and a power to change on the other side. That's what Paul was saying last week. He picks up right there in verse 12 and he's still talking about Moses. He's saying that there's a big difference between what I'm doing in my ministry and what Moses was doing. In fact, he he goes back to this image from, from, uh, from Exodus chapter 32 to 34 where Moses is getting the law for the first time and giving it to his people. He's gone up onto this mountain. He's met with God there. God has given him actually... Laws written on stone by somehow by God's own hand. He's given that to Moses, and through that experience, Moses' face 
It's transformed. It's shining. It's got some glory to it. And the Israelites are terrified. They don't know what to do with that. So to keep them from seeing it, Moses puts a veil over his face and he keeps that veil on when he goes into the holy place. He, he, keeps, he takes it off when he's in there in the presence of God. He comes back out to face the people and he puts his veil back on. Paul is using that story to, to kind of make an analogy here that just like Moses had to veil his face so that the people of Israel could not see the glory that was on it, so their hearts were veiled when they read the law. They didn't see the glory in it. They couldn't see it as something beautiful and wonderful, as something that drew them in rather than just stood over them in judgment. He says, verse 14, that their minds were hardened. To this day, he says, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. To this day, verse 15, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Under the old way, in other words, God's people were cut off from his glory. Think of his beauty, his power, his goodness, his glory as all the things that make him wonderful on display for us to see. There was something about the Israelites cutting them off from seeing that glory for what it was, from wanting to be joined to it rather than fearing it or shrinking back from it. Paul's using the veil to show that they were cut off. But during this time, On this side of Jesus, when God's Spirit has been given to all of God's people, along with descriptions of who He is and what He's like and what He wants from us, when He's also given us His presence so that we have power to be what He's called us to be. And this in this time, the veil's removed. Through Christ, that veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. I want, to, I want to make sure that these steps he's taking are clear. The Spirit leads to freedom. That's verse 17. That's the newness of this time. And freedom is not having a veil cutting you off from the glory of God so that you can't see it. The Spirit removes that veil so that now you see the glory of God. And seeing the glory of God is the key to transformation. That's what verse 18 says. Now we all, with unveiled face, nothing keeping us back from the glory of God, beholding the glory of the Lord, a word that means to look at it, to fixate on it, to grab a hold and look and stare at it and study it, beholding the glory of the Lord. We are being transformed into the same image, into His glory, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So Spirit leads to freedom. What is freedom? Freedom is an absence of a veil that keeps us from seeing and becoming those who reflect God's glory as His image. Freedom comes when we are transformed into His image by gazing on the glory that once we couldn't see, but now is revealed. And this is where we need to slow down a minute. I know there's a lot of weeds there, okay? A lot of weeds there. I want to slow down a minute and make sure that you understand why this news is radically powerful to transform your life, but why you've got to be real careful not to miss it. What it is in you and in all of us, there's some assumptions in us that set us up to miss the power of what Paul is saying here. The kind of freedom Paul's talking about 
is the freedom to see and be transformed by God's glory. Before, we didn't have that freedom. Now we do. To see and be transformed by something very specific. His version of freedom, his version of transformation is very different from what we're often looking for. So let me ask you, so what do you feel like your life is missing? Do you feel like you're missing happiness or fulfillment? If you do, if you feel like your life is missing the happiness or fulfillment that you want, what do you believe is holding you back? Assuming what, that, that you want your life to be different from what it is, how do you think you get there? What's holding you back? Probably you look at one of two places. You would look inside yourself for barriers inside of you that might be there to, to you being able to recognize and see and embrace your truest self. Or you might look outside of yourself to the circumstances in your life that are keeping you from freely pursuing what you need to be happy. Chances are, if your life is missing the happiness or fulfillment that you want it to be, if you want your life to be different, and you, add, and you thought carefully about what you believe is holding you back from the life that you want for yourself, chances are you would look and either find some sort of barrier inside yourself that's keeping you from seeing and embracing who you really are, or you're look, you would look outside of you to some sort of barrier in your life some circumstance that's holding you back from being able to freely pursue what you need to be happy. I think a template for what we tend to assume about freedom and what it is and what we need to get there is uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's Eat, Pray, Love. This runaway bestseller from, I don't remember, maybe 10 years ago, made into another movie that was really popular. Uh, Are you guys with me on this? Do you guys know this book, Eat, Pray, Love? It's sort of like travel literature, but it's also more than that. It's more about deeper insight into yourself, who you are, what you need to be fulfilled and happy person. Elizabeth Gilbert, it's a memoir of her life. Elizabeth Gilbert was a successful writer. Uh, She was married to a devoted husband. She was splitting her time in Manhattan and in a big new house in the Hudson Valley. They were moving toward plans for kids that they'd always wanted together. It looked exactly like the life that she wanted. It's the life she thought she wanted at one time. It's what she did want until she didn't. One dark night, uh, she was crying out for deliverance. Crying out for deliverance from the things that she didn't want anymore in her life. And she described hearing a voice answer back to her in response. Not a Charlton Heston Old Testament voice, she said, but, quote, merely my own voice, speaking from within my own self. At first, the voice told her to go back to bed, so she did. Later, she realized what she needed was to leave the marriage that she was in that wasn't happy or fulfilling anymore, to leave the big house behind and the job that she had been working, and to set off on a quest of self-discovery. She traveled to Italy, to India, to Indonesia. She was in all sorts of really strange and interesting places, talking to all sorts of strange and interesting people. And what she finds through her quest ends up remarkably similar to where she began. She began with that voice, speaking from within herself. And what she found at the end, what she learned to embrace, she says, this is a quote from her book, that God dwells within you as yourself, exactly the way you are. She found that our inability to find and to keep contentment comes from a failure to see that, this is another quote, somewhere within us all, 
there does exist a supreme self who's eternally at peace. And that supreme self is our true identity, universal and divine. So what's going on here in Gilbert's journey of self-discovery? She's offering us a model of freedom and transformation. A kind of freedom from the things in her life that she believed were holding her back from being her truest self. And a kind of transformation that comes from recognizing that self inside and embracing it. She craved freedom from constraint, from a bad marriage and an unsatisfying job and all sorts of expectations about who she should be. And she saw that as the path to her transformation. She identifies God and God's spirit with, and God's will with what she already is. Any barrier, any veil, if you will, cutting her off from what she needs to see in order to be transformed is a veil to her own knowledge of herself. Think of it as a freedom as raccoon tail ball. It's a, it's a very powerful vision. I think it's one all of us are drawn to, especially in where we live, uh, in this time, this place, in the modern world. This is where energy and power seems to be. I don't want to interact so much more with the details of, of Gilbert's vision I just want to make sure that you notice, especially this morning if you're a Christian, make sure you notice that what Paul is saying is is something very, very different. He wants the same thing, a certain kind of freedom that leads to a certain kind of transformation. But his definition of the kind of freedom you need and his definition of the transformation that God will give you is very different from this model. The transformation Paul wants for you is not to recognize and express and affirm your truest self, but to be radically made over in someone else's image. To see and embrace and to love God's expression of himself. What he's saying is that there is freedom where the Spirit of the Lord is. What is where the Spirit of the Lord is? A veil ripped, moved apart. Why do we want the veil to be gone? Because now without that veil, we can actually see him. We can see his beauty and his power. We're not cut off from it anymore. So true transformation in my life is going to be from me looking at what I can see now by the power of the Spirit, what was inaccessible to me before. I'll be transformed if I'm set free to see him as he is and to pursue him like a high-speed passenger train across a prairie on tracks made for that, tracks aimed at him, tracks pulling me where I'm pulled along by the compelling beauty and power of who he is. It's freedom to be something very specific. This unveiled face we have, this glory of the Lord that we behold and look at is the glory of Jesus. In chapter 4, Paul uses almost the same language about the glory of the Lord and, and being transformed into the same image when he's talking about Christ. He talks about the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He talks about seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. 
So back up here in chapter 3, in verse 18, what he's saying is that we can see him now, his glory in Jesus. The image of who God is and what he's like and what he's done that comes through the life, the teaching, the death of Jesus is the image we can now see and be changed by. So if you want to be free to be the best version of you, your primary focus can't be on what's going on inside of you. As if the real you is in there waiting to be discovered and embraced and loved and turned loose on the world. That's not the way forward. And it can't be, your focus can't be on what's going on around you as if your circumstances are what's keeping you back from freedom. If you want the transformation that Paul's offering you here, you need the freedom that comes specifically by the Spirit. And that's a freedom to see and be changed by Jesus and who He is. So your focus, if you want to be free and then transformed, has got to be Jesus. Paul's saying that only, it's only our blindness to Jesus' beauty that keeps us fixated on ourselves. I'm going to take an image from C.S. Lewis and use it a little differently than he did. I think it still works. Lewis talked about the problem in all of our lives of being content playing with mud pies in a mud hole only because we've never seen the beauty of the ocean. We're like kids who, who just are happy as larks looking for, for more and better mud pies to create when they don't even know that there's this amazing beach vacation waiting for them out there if they were just able to take it. I think when we seek freedom to be transformed anywhere else in Jesus, we're, we're just mucking about in the mess looking for new mud pies to make, not even aware that out there there's something beautiful, glorious, that's available to us, that we have freedom now by the Spirit to be joined to Him. So, friends, is Jesus the primary reference for who you are? for what you want out of your life? If he's not, you're not going to be truly free. You won't be. You may have the freedom of one of those raccoon balls, but you won't have the freedom of a train barreling down the track, purposeful, effective, unencumbered, and free. That's the freedom that God gave his own son to give you. And by the Spirit... We can see it. The next question is, though, how does this veil get lifted? And Paul is saying that the transformation we want, it comes when we behold the glory of the Lord and through beholding the glory of the Lord, through fixating on Jesus, we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. That's what he said. That's what he wants. Freedom to see and then be changed by what we see. So what does it actually look like for us to have this veil lifted so that we do see Jesus as something more compelling and beautiful than any other options in our life? I won't be free, I've been told. I won't be joyful or fulfilled or happy or my truest self unless I see God's glory in Jesus. How do I see it? Once again, Paul's answer is unexpected. His answer is challenging. But ultimately, it's hopeful. Here's what he tells us. This comes in on the other side of the sandwich, the other piece of bread, if you will, around the sandwich that is Paul's ministry philosophy. Beginning in verse 3, here's what Paul's going to tell us. To see this glory, to have this veil lifted, this 
access, this new access to the full and beautiful power of Jesus and what he's done, if you want to see it, you can't do anything. This freedom only comes through God's grace. I want to show you where I'm getting this from. I want to pick up in verse 3. Paul's still talking about why some people don't see the beauty in what he's talking about. He's explaining why some people hear him talk about Jesus and don't like it. He believes that he's part of a battle for the minds and the hearts, the souls of the people that he speaks to. Look at verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, he says. In their case, verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's why people reject his message. Paul's talking about a figure that's assumed, the reality of this figure is assumed all through the Bible. Often we call this figure Satan, refer to him as the devil, refer to in a variety of ways through the Bible, but the whole Bible assumes he's real. Paul's using an almost tongue-in-cheek phrase, God of this world, little g, not the true God, not a real God, but he's powerful. And he's active. And what he wants to do is keep people from seeing the light. Keep people from seeing the beauty of Jesus, the image of God that they need in order to be changed. He wants to keep people from seeing and embracing what God has made them to be. The first place we ever see this evil figure work, doing his work is in the very, near the very beginning of the Bible story. In the garden where everything is perfect, where humans are made in the image of God, freely enjoying all that he is, everything that he had provided for them, this evil one enters into that perfect world and starts to tell lies. The lies that he tells are lies about what God wants, what God has made you to be, whether that's a good thing for you or not, whether you'll be free if you embrace what he said rather than reject it and go your own way. He tells Eve, the first woman, it's this evil serpent tells Eve, you'll be better off. You'll be more you. If you do away with these boundaries God's put around who you are and what you can do, just do away with those. Those are, those are there to hold you back. Those are his power play in your life. Break off the shackles. Eat the fruit. You'll be like him. Lies about identity. Lies about what you were made to be. Lies about what kind of things will lead to real freedom in your life. That's, what his, that's his work. That's what he does. His work is to convince us that God is not good for us. That either he's not there at all, or if he is there, wants something good for him, but not good for you. What's Paul's response to this, to knowing that, that there's a battle going on over the minds and the hearts of every person that he ever meets in his ministry. His response isn't some sort of 10-point strategy for outsmarting him or outflanking him, bringing him down. It's not Paul's battle to fight. He's not looking for that fight. He's nobody's hero. He's nobody's savior. He doesn't even preach himself, verse 5 says. He only preaches Jesus. He just keeps on preaching this rejected message, even to people who are unable and unwilling to see the power in what he's preaching. And verse 6 explains why he sticks to this strategy. Why he only does one thing with his whole life. 
Verse 6 explains what it takes for anybody, for me, for you, for anybody, to have the veil lifted and to believe in Jesus. Here's what Paul writes in verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. For somebody to be set free from the veil, from blindness that cuts them off from the beauty of Jesus, for somebody to be set free from that blindness and then remade, transformed in His image, what it takes is a creation of a world-level miracle. What it takes is the same power that said, let light shine. What it takes is a God who can make something out of nothing. This God has to give them this gift by His grace. That's unexpected, isn't it? I think most of us assume that conversion happens, that people see Jesus and want to follow Him, maybe because they were born into it, because they were part of families or cultures where it was just expected as part of growing up that you would take this on for, your, for yourself. Or we think of it as something that you're convinced of. We think of a powerful argument being cobbled together piece by piece till it's just too compelling to say no. We think about people being convinced or born into this attachment to Jesus. But Paul's saying it's not because you were born into it. There's no one who's in any better position, who's in needing any less of a miracle than anyone else. It isn't because you just had your mind convinced. And you see it when you're given a new sense to see and taste its goodness as a miracle of God. What you need is a certain kind of knowledge. If you want to see the beauty of Jesus and then be remade into it, and friends, listen to me here. If, if you want to see Jesus and be changed by him, then you're going to need something very specific and there's no way to get there apart from this thing that you need. What you need is this. You need a new sense a new way of acquiring knowledge about the world. You need not just your sense of sight, so you can see what's around, not just your sense of taste, so you can taste what is, not just your sense of touch or smell. You need a new spiritual sense to perceive the truth of what he said about Jesus, to love what he has said about Jesus, and then to be changed by it. There's no shortcut for this. It's its own kind of knowledge. It's entirely unique, and no one gets there without it. Only God can give it. Now, I want to, I want to end here with Paul's main point. I just want to state it. Paul's main point at the center of this passage is a point about his own ministry. It's sandwiched around these things I've already explained about what God is doing to set people free and transform them and about how God is doing it by his own power through a miracle that he does in your heart. Now, those two truths sandwich something Paul says about what he's doing with his life. Because Paul knows that people are transformed when they see Jesus, Jesus' beauty, when they want what he is and what he wants more than anything else, because Paul knows that they'll only see Jesus' beauty and want it for themselves if God's Spirit does a miracle inside of them, setting them free from blindness and shining a beam of light in their hearts, because Paul believes those things about what it takes, therefore, he doesn't lose heart. 
Therefore, he's renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. He's not tampering with the truth. He doesn't practice cunning. He doesn't change this message as if him figuring out the perfect way to put it is the difference between somebody believing it or not believing it. He knows if anybody's going to respond well to what he's doing, God's going to have to do a miracle. So he's out of the miracle game. He is not the miracle maker. He doesn't lose heart, and he doesn't get cute. He just keeps doing what he does. He just talks about Jesus, and then he talks about Jesus some more. And then with anyone else who will listen, he he keeps on talking about Jesus because he knows the only way anyone gets better is through Jesus. This is a man who is completely free from fear and pride. He could have been afraid that he'd give his life to something that just wouldn't work, something that would be rejected, something that nobody wanted. He's not afraid of failure. He doesn't lose heart. He could have been prideful. He could have assumed, I can get them there. I've got training. I've got apostolic skills. I am the difference between someone seeing and loving what's true about Jesus and not seeing it. And that could have led him to get cute, to tamper, to practice cunning, underhanded ways, to to maybe shift the message a little bit to fit more the tastes of the people that he's talking to. He had those skills. He could have done that. He could have taken it as his own job to get people there. But he doesn't. He rejects that pride just as surely as he rejects his fear. He's free. And friends, this can set you free too. Free from fear. Are you afraid that you might be blind to the truth? Do you find yourself struggling to find any joy or light in Jesus and his gospel? Maybe you came here this morning knowing something has to give about your life, but even the stuff I've been saying this morning just doesn't land well. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like what you need, but you want something. Don't be afraid. Just pray. Pray for a light shining in your heart. As Paul prays in other places, pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened. What you need is a new sense, not merely intellectual understanding, not merely emotions that are moved. You need a new sense to perceive truth that you can't see right now. And that only comes through God's grace. So pray. Are you afraid that somebody you love is blind, is still living behind the veil? Pray. It's going to take a miracle of God's grace But don't be afraid as if it were hanging on your ability to make things clear and compelling to them, on your ability to answer any question that they might have. That is not on you. You don't have to find the perfect angle. You don't have to anticipate and respond perfectly to every objection. You don't have to soften the rough edges around the Bible's message. Somehow get rid of what might alienate them. That's not on you. You can't do this miracle. Give it up. Just proclaim Jesus as Lord and pray that God's light will shine. That's your move. That's all you've got. And it works. 
This message can set you free from fear. It can also set you free from pride. Do you believe in Jesus? Have you seen something of his beauty? Thank God, friends, because that is not about you. You didn't figure something out that all unbelievers haven't figured out. You aren't on the inside of something they're helplessly on the outside of because of something you did. You weren't able to see through what still blinds them or recognize the power of some sort of logic that's still lost on them. You don't get something they can't get. You have been remade by grace alone. So give thanks, but don't take pride. You see what you see because God is good, because he's kind, and because he's powerful enough to change you. Do you want to be one of those Christians that gets it, that understands more secular perspectives, that's maybe more comfortable, like edging up to what more secular people think? Maybe, maybe, maybe you want to be, you want to think of yourself as the kind of Christian who's, 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 who's not blinded by Christian subculture, who actually gets the wisdom of other perspectives. There's, there's plenty of reason to look for other perspectives, wisdom, wherever you can find it. But be careful, friends, that you don't think that you could be the difference between a secular friend seeing that Christianity really is for them after all because of your cosmopolitan experiences. You're going to be tempted, if you do, to tamper with God's word. To try to reframe what he has said in a way that will make more sense to modern ears. That's what you're going to be tempted to. That's pride talking to you, friends. That's a pride that wants to be on the inside of something because you thought your way there. A pride that wants to be the difference between someone else getting it or not getting it. Let this message set you free from fear that might hold you back from pride that might cause you to overextend and just be with and for Jesus where he's put you. That's Paul's call to us this morning. I want to pray that, he will, that God will help us by his spirit to be faithful. God, we know that, that this, is, this is as clear as anywhere else in the Bible that the things that we need most come only from your hand. We just can't get there on our own. Forgive us, please, Father, for thinking that we can. Forgive us for asserting ourselves when we need to trust. Forgive us for trying to get too creative for our own good in a way that takes away from your power to change people. Forgive us for holding back when we are afraid because we think we ought to be able to convince somebody on our own. Thank you for giving us Paul as a model here. We want to be a people who are motivated to reach out to others because of what we're seeing for ourselves. People who speak from experience. Not from some sort of confidence we earned by our powers, but from hearts that just can't stop overflowing. We know that what we want, in other words, is something only you can give us. So we ask you, in Jesus' name we ask you, Father, help us to behold your glory. Transform us from one degree of glory to another. By your Spirit, set us free to be what you made us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.